uh, especially for our guests, right? Um, the Lord has just put it on my heart uh, to get into a sermon series on uh, what I'm calling the narrative. Um, and uh, so last week I introduced this idea of the narrative, and it's this idea that it appears to me that on planet Earth that there is a narrative or a story or a theme that the enemy, right, the enemy of our souls is trying to bring forth the planet Earth, right? And, it's, and the narrative is like, in short, everything on Earth is changing. And everything that seemed to be acceptable and normal and decent and right and biblical is like getting all turned over on its head, right? And it's been it's a kind of a weird kind of thing. So what I was encouraging us in is this. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to do um, some kind of like fundamental teaching and learning about some of the fundamentals of being a son or daughter of the Lord. And what I mean by that is like things that we really need to teach each other in because the world is coming up against it. Things like what does it mean to exercise appropriate biblical masculinity? What does it look like to exemplify appropriate biblical femininity, right? It's not as the world sees it, and it's not like being chauvinistic and all, not, no, not that, but like what does the word say about these things? Because the God has made Adam and Eve, right? He made male and female, right? Uh, things like marriage and things of how to conduct ourselves, and the reason being is that in this generation, everything seems to be being brought into question now, Right? And it just dawned on me when I heard a congresswoman say that people should stop having children because the population of the planet will reach 9 billion and we would not be able to sustain that and then therefore it is your duty not to have children. And it was like, whoa. Well, there's several, but one, I'm speaking of one particular congresswoman who's, who's saying that. Uh, so it's just crazy. Like you would never think that we would be entering into something like that. So that's what we're doing. And so today is, oh, what's going on? Oh, we're good? Okay. Today, you'll see on the slide in a moment, is um, this is part two of this narrative s- series, and it is um, entitled, The Order of the Lord is Perfect. The Order of the Lord is Perfect. Okay? It is good. The way that he has created life and has created the narratives of life is good, is perfect, is ideal. And you just got to realize that because he's God, Right? So we're going to open up to uh, 1 Timothy 4. Um, we're going to be, I don't want to, for, especially for our guests, uh, this might be a little bit of a different one today. We're going to be like kind of like jumping around to different elements, I think. We'll see how it all comes out. You can tell me later. But it's going to be a, a little different um, because there's a couple different themes that are, that are coming together in this, okay? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is a very interesting end times passage. It's a passage that when people are talking about the book of Revelation and they're talking about the coming of the Lord, they, I, I, have, I have not personally have heard someone preach out of this section, okay? Uh, but this section actually has a lot of significance for my life, and it is an end times passage, okay? And it's very peculiar, very interesting. 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's begin with verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, that's pretty phenomenal. It's not the Spirit says. It's not that the Holy Spirit has told us. It says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressively says. This is like there is a fine-tuning. It's like 
cloud out, get rid of all the noise, zone in here. The Holy Spirit is really putting his finger on this right now. I don't know of any other scripture verse in the New Testament that says it like that. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, right, so the end of the age, the beginning of the end of the age, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And if you could just bring my mic down a little bit, that'd be great. They will speak lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. This is a phenomenal passage of Scripture, I think. And it's this. We're going to see that in the end of times, there will be deceiving spirits. There will be people who will gravitate towards certain types of doctrine and, and, and elements of faith which are not biblical. Right? And it has the appearance here, <clears throat> excuse me, appearance here that this is not going to be fringe. This is going to be like the bride will get fooled. And they'll be fooled by a deceiving spirit to follow things that are not in the word. I think without calling out people, without calling out ministries, I think we all can see that with some of the more socially, cultural, uh, appropriate things that society is doing, a lot of churches have bent their knee to it, right? That's a deceiving spirit. It will come. It's not like it might come. It actually says that the spirit expressly says it will come. Two, there will be people in the bride. This is not just the loss. This is people in the church itself uh, that will be caught up in hypocrisy. And what is hypocrisy? You say one thing, you do another. You say one thing, and you teach one thing, but yet you do a different thing. Being hypocritical in their spirit. Very powerful. Their own conscience will be seared. What on earth does that mean? This means here, in, in, in a kind of poetic way, is that they have seared their conscience where there is a hardening of it, where there is no way to change one's conscience. It's like you believe so fervently of your sin and of your belief that your own conscience has been seared that you no longer know right or wrong. And even if someone shows it to you, you can't see it because you're so overcome by your already pre-held belief. And if someone shows you truth, you can't because your conscience has been seared like a piece of meat. I had a good brisket yesterday, by the way. <laughs> Speaking of being seared. <laughs> Glory to the Lord. <laughs> Told you this is very, it is very, very appropriate to me. I'm a, I'm a former butcher, so we're talking about like meats and food and stuff. We got to hit my spirit, man. <laughs> yeah. It, it was returned to sender. Sorry. Elvis, return to sender. Right. Next one, getting a little bit more serious. Uh, this is something that I, uh, I, I had to really wrestle with. This may not be the time to, to discuss it, but one day there's a sermon in it. But uh, something that I really wrestled with in my late teens and early 20s. And it's this concept of a forbid forbidding marriage. Like, how weird is that? There's going to be a doctrine and a belief out there that you are to forbid, forbade, forebode, whatever marriage, right? 
And then, of course, abstaining from foods which God has created. You are not to get married. You are not to eat certain food. You are not to do this, all this kind of stuff. This is the truth. You can't question it. Our, our consciences, consciences have been seared. Hypocrisy, nuttiness, that is what will happen. Okay? Now, we will get into the levels of marriage and, uh, and food in a moment. because I do think it's, it's, it's ironically, strangely happening. Uh, but I, I don't want you to lose this. I think the interesting thing here is that there's a spirit that is being exemplified here, and there are characteristics of a certain spiritual atmosphere, which is essentially this, right? It, there is a creation of an atmosphere where the order and the paradigm or paradigms of God and that which he created is wrong. That's what people will begin to teach, right? These are just examples. Food, marriage, truth. But really, it's coming underneath the spirit that the ways of the Lord, the paradigms of the Lord, the, way, the things that the Lord has created and has created as constructs of life are wrong. Come on. Male and female, he made them, right? A marriage is between a male and a female. That is like out the window, right? That is, quote, unquote, wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? It's a paradigm and a construct that God created. No, that is wrong. Okay? That's what I'm talking about here. So as a recap, the big things here are hypocrisy, forbidding marriage, food. Uh, and so, you know, getting into this, you know, I'm going to be honest. It was one of those sermons where I'm like, oh, will some people be offended by? Um, well, no one cares until it's the thing that offends them, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way it works, right? I'm not, you know, it's like, ah, who cares if people are offended until it offends you? So I want to just lovingly come to you and say, look, if these things are making you like a little squirmy, there may be a reason for it. Either I am not speaking truth or there's a sensitivity in you on certain things. And I'll be honest, if I sat in this pew and if you taught me certain things, there would be certain things that would make me my skin crawl because or there are things that I am trying to still work on and... I don't want to deal with it right now, right? So if you're like, mm, it might be that the Lord is trying to work on something with you that you're not okay with right now, okay? But that's called growth. That's called growth. All right, so taking a look at this, let's talk about uh, beginning here with uh, a little bit of marriage here. I, I mean, I, I totally can see the forbidding of marriage may be in a spiritual sense, not necessarily don't get married, but I think the spirit here could be an excuse of you should not get married. Um, you hear it in our, uh, uh, any culture throughout time when you live in a culture of abundance. You know? uh, don't get married because, well, you're going to lose your independence. Yes. Yeah, you will. Uh, don't get married, um, you're going to lose some finances. Yes. You will. You will. Maybe you're too young. You're too young to get married. You don't want to get married, but you shouldn't get married yet. You should get married when you're older, 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 older. Fine. Maybe that's what the Lord actually is doing with you. That's absolutely possible. Um, I know, I'm, I'm, it's, like I said, these are things that you know, hit some sensitivities, but I fervently believe that it's God's ideal plan, you know, we can agree to disagree, to get married younger. Uh, I do believe that, and there's some very interesting statistics that back up with that. Interesting enough, the younger you get married, the less likely you are to have a divorce. That's what the statistics are saying. 
I'm not saying that if you get married older that you're going to get a divorce. I, I mean, what is young, what is old? I don't know. I got married at 29. For some people, that's young. For other people, that's old. Like, my parents got married at 24, right? So, yeah, obviously, it's very subjective is what I'm trying to say. But what I think here is if you take a look at the historical nature of mankind o over the history of the cosmos and you take a look at the way that our bodies are designed, we were designed by God to get married and procreate at a younger age. That, that's that's what, what it is. Now, I, I didn't do that. I'm just saying I, I do fervently believe, actually, that that's an ideal. That's not always what the Lord does with people, obviously. But what I'm saying here is this spirit of if you get married, you will lose these things. Yes, you will. You will. But it's good. Uh, food. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is amazing. Uh, there's a really cool documentary out there called The Cowspiracy. Caitlin, have you ever seen that one? It, yeah, you're going to like it. It's good. Yeah, write it down. This is actually a really phenomenal uh, documentary. Uh, and I love it uh, when you talk to, like, environmentalists. And the whole point of the documentary is you cannot be... You cannot be an environmentalist, according to this documentary, unless you are a vegetarian. The, the, the amount of carbon that is released from methane from cows, like, the, the argument in the documentary is, like, you can have electric cars all on planet Earth. As long as you have that many cows pooping and, I don't know what the appropriate word is, passing gas, <laughs> that number of methane in the atmosphere is, is doing quite a bit for climate change. So then, therefore, the appropriate thing to do is not to eat meat. You should be eating beans and, and, and lettuce. Now, if you're eating beans and lettuce because you have a, a conviction to, to eat vegetarian, cool. But when you have a culture and a spirit that is saying, you don't do this. You don't do this. Well, God said, I can. No, you can't do this. Disrupting the order of the Lord. There's a big difference between a personal conviction. I have per certain personal convictions. Um, Others have other personal convictions with, with food and diet. That's different than a culture and a spirit on earth that is essentially trying to make you feel guilty. And I think there's a big piece of this, right? So look, it's not so much about the specifics, but an atmosphere, I do believe this, an atmosphere of changing God's divine order to things. I, I really think that's what we're talking about here. Um, you know, just so we are reminded by these things, right? Um. Psalms chapter 18, verse 30. I mean, it's right out of the book, the good book. As for God, his way is perfect. Enough said. Drop the mic. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Okay? What we see from the word of the Lord is clearly that the word of God is pure, is perfect, it is good the way that he created the earth and the ecosystems on the earth and the way that he created animals and the way that he created the weather and the way that he created mankind and the way that he created womankind. It is good. It's not just good. It's perfect in his order. In fact, right, the scriptures say, the scriptures say that um, his beauty and his majesty is seen all throughout creation. Right? 
And so this is what, man, we gotta like tap into this, right? It's this notion here of, no, the earth is not defiled in the way in which God made it. It is good. It is beautiful. It shows his amazing majesty, okay? And with that, yeah, if we can go to that video. I wanted to show you that, and I might just be, I don't know, some nature boy. But when I see things like that, and maybe it's the music, I don't know, maybe it's just the HD drone footage, how can you not stand in the amazing wonder of the beauty of God and his creation? How can you not see that there is an order to the planet? How can you not see that God's justice and righteousness and beauty can be made manifest on earth? It's not defiled. It is not bad. It reveals the splendor and glory and majesty of the creator. But this is the problem, Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, I've never seen this ever in my life until right now the Holy Spirit is highlighting this. For this reason, what reason? They worship creation and not the creator. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Like, I think all of us are probably old enough to understand what's being said there by Paul, right? Same-sex unions. But what's fascinating here is how did it happen? Once they started to worship creation and not the creator, what did they do? They began to change the order of things. When we worship the creator, we acknowledge and we see the order of things on planet earth. And then, therefore, we see the majesty. If we just worship the creation, you begin to change the order of things. This is what's happening on planet earth. What's happening here is the attempt to change the natural order of God in his paradigms and constructs. That's the narrative. Okay? It's powerful. So powerful and so beautiful. Look, I love praying for people who have allergies. I love it. I love people with gluten allergies, people with pollen allergies, and dander, and dog hair. And I love praying for them. Because you know what it says in Genesis chapter 1? Everything that he created, every seed-bearing plant is good. And if it's good, that means that you can't have allergies. Once I got this, I'm telling you, I used to get some allergies. I used to get some allergies. I started declaring that. I don't have allergies. I don't get pollen. I don't get dander. I don't get anything like that. Do we have two confirmed cases here of people that were healed just the last couple of weeks from gluten allergies? If God made wheat and that wheat is good in his eyes, then therefore we should not have ailments. We should not have problems. Don't believe. Don't believe that you're supposed to struggle with God's creation. Why would you struggle with God's creation? He told you to steward it and take care of it. It's an environment that he purposely orchestrated for human beings to be able to live in. It can't be bad. It can't be horrible. It's got to be good. He says it's good. It's good. It's good. Now, look, I will be the first. I'll be the first, honestly. I'll be, this is actually a passion of mine. Okay? I would be the first here uh, to recognize the defilement of food and the defilement of animals, and the defilement of that which God made is good. 
It's one of the main reasons why, I mean, I believe so fervently in that defilement that the world is trying to defile things that I literally bought a small farm. And why did I buy a little small farm? To raise my own food in a non-defiled way. Eventually, we're getting there. But that's how fervently I believe. Look, the food system and the food we eat, yes, has been defiled. Why was it defiled? Because mankind is seeking effervescent profits and greed over health. That's why. Right? Now, you have a choice if you want to buy into that or not. Right? Uh, look, man, there, there are people that are coming up against this narrative. This is like my hero, Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms. He, uh, he calls himself a libertarian, evangelical, Christian, lunatic farmer. <laughs> I'm like, I want to be you when I grow up. Uh, he's down in Virginia, and what is this man doing? He's like, the man has defiled food. It is my mission and my family's mission to restore honor, holiness, sanctity, and purity to food. And that means, yeah, you eat meat. Okay? If you want to, right? There's, you can be a vegetarian if you want to in the house of the Lord, right? But it's this notion of, like, there are forces at work that want to defile everything. And this is a very powerful man who's got some phenomenal writings uh, that, that talk about what's really causing problems on earth is man's greed. But if you went back to family farms that are dealing with permaculture and organic uh, and um, poly kind of uh, polycarbon, I don't want to bore you with all, this, with all the farming terms, like do the things that our ancestors did, we would be fine. Bringing back holiness into food. I'm a big fan of him. Whatever case be, this is not about gluten, it's not about seeds, it's not necessarily about meat, it's not about all these things. It's about a narrative, and it's this. The narrative that is on earth is, if you really follow it, I believe there is really a theme of the establishment of guilt. I, I really believe this is what Satan is doing in this hour. He's trying to make mankind be guilty. Be guilty on what you've done. Be guilty on this. Be guilty on that. Look, I'll be the, one of the first to admit that there have been, obviously, historically, um, injustices done to various groups of people in the United States. No doubt. How, how could one deny that? But to say that I, a 21st century male now, need to be guilty because of a sense of privilege that I have received is asinine. Why is it asinine? My parents were faithful. They served the Lord. The scriptures say that there will be blessings to each generation after you. Then, therefore, why should I be guilty by that which God has given me and through my family? I can't be guilty about, about that, right? Why would I be guilty? In fact, I praise the Lord for it. I thank him for his tender, loving mercies. Does that mean that I put my head in the sand and don't acknowledge that there are other groups on earth and in our country that have not had that blessing? Of course not. In fact, as a call of a Messiah and a son and a daughter of the living God, you are called to actually preach the gospel, to assist, to help, to bear the burdens, to give to those that are in need, 110%. But what I'm saying here is that there is a spirit of guilt that's trying to fall on earth. I'm not guilty for the faithfulness of my parents. I'm not guilty that my grandmother, who was in an abusive relationship when married, got on her knees and prayed for her children and her grandchildren. And decades later, there is fruit from it. Why would I be guilty from the faithfulness of those who came before me, serving and loving the Lord that created a life and an atmosphere for me and my kids? I will not be guilty for that. I will raise a hallelujah to the living God for his faithfulness and his goodness. That's what people need to know, right? 
But there is a guilt. There is a guilt on your food. There's a guilt on if you have money. There's a guilt if you're successful. There's a guilt if you have a college education. There's a guilt if you're white. There's a guilt if you make this much money. There's a guilt if you have this much money. There's all of this kind of flowing of guilt that's trying to get out there. And what I feel the Lord is saying, if what you have and who you are has been obtained through acts of righteousness and, and being just and honoring to God, there is no guilt, but there's joy. But the enemy, right now, with all these things, a searing of conscience, is trying to sow a seed and a platform of guilt. Guilt for everything we do. That's not the Lord, amen? All right. Well, here's the thing. Don't let your conscience be seared. Booker T. Washington, a lie doesn't become truth. Wrong doesn't become right. And evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority doesn't happen. Truth is truth. But as Adolf Hitler said, uh, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. You could tell a really big lie. Marriage is not good. Children is not good. It's going to disrupt your life. It's going to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, if you keep saying it, and 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 if you keep saying it, it becomes truth. Here's the fact. The fact is God's order is good. God's order is perfect. His divine order on how to live life, on how to express life, will bring joy. It will. I don't care what the world says about it. His ways bring joy. There are, th I'm going to just talk today on three of the oldest paradigms and constructs that are being brought into question. There's many, and we're going to go into some of them in the next couple of weeks, but these are the three that I wanted to lump together in this divine order and guilt piece, and it's this. The oldest paradigm that God created that I can see in the scriptures uh, is actually working. This is, this is very sophisticated stuff, how the enemy works. The oldest construct, paradigm, order that I can see that God created was man is to work. He is to tend to the garden. In fact, he makes the Garden of Eden, then he puts man inside of it and tells man to tend to it before he even makes Eve. Get working. This is going to be really far out for some of you. Um, you as a person... You have a divine purpose, you have a divine purpose to be created to steward the earth and to literally work. I, I know this is a hard one, right? You're like, Pastor, I got a purpose and divine to work. Yes, is the first thing that God did. He, he created a garden and then he's like, mm, it needs a caretaker. Let me make a man to take care of it. I, this is going to be hard, man. And I, I got hit over the head myself. It is, it is, guys, I'm telling you right now, in a New Testament context, it is absolutely possible, and this is the lie that we have to come up against, it is absolutely possible to work and not toil, for work not to be drudgery. The scripture says, everything you do, do unto as if you're doing it to the Lord. If you do not have joy in what you do as an occupation, it's going to be hard. 
but you need to evaluate why. I'm telling you right now, I hate going to work. Man, that's not the order of the Lord. The order of the Lord is you were created to work, then part of the creation. Then, therefore, what you work should be joyous. And if you're not full of joy in what you're doing, you need to evaluate why. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why you may not be joyous doing work. One reason is your eyes are too much on the work and your eyes are not enough on the colleagues that are around you that need to hear the gospel. And I'll tell you right now, if you go to work and you start sharing the gospel, you start laying hands on people and praying for them to be healed, and they start getting healed, and they start coming into the kingdom, guess what? Sunday night, you are going to be really, really excited to get to work again. Second, and this one is probably more difficult, and is going to take some more evaluation, it's this. You may not have joy in your career because you are, in fact, not doing what God has designed you to do. That's a rude awakening. If you're like, man, I really don't like this, then you are doing something that you were not designed to do. And somewhere along the lines, you lost what you were designed to do. You got to go find what you were designed to do. Now, I know, I know this, this, look, this is, this is the narrative. No, work and pay your bills and have a whatever lifestyle. That might be a good thing to some extent, but what I'm saying here is why shouldn't you be able to go to work and have the joy and the love of the Lord and putting your hands to something that you were actually designed to do? Okay? Look, I was designed to be a teacher. Sometimes I'm not real joyous in it. I get that. But, there, but for the longevity, I am. And you know what? I probably would not have joy doing some of the things that you guys do. You got to find what you were designed to do. And you got to do it. Because when you're doing what you were designed to do, you're stepping into the things of the kingdom and people see it and they see your joy and they see that you're different. But the enemy is just going to say, no, just stick to what you're doing. Make the money and be all grumpy about it. No, thanks, man. That's not the life I want to live. It's not the life I want to live. That's not a lie that I'm going to listen to over and over and over again until it becomes truth. I was put on the earth to tend to the garden. I'm going to do something that I have joy in. The second oldest paradigm, this is where things get sensitive. Take it to the Lord, and you can email Pastor Joshua. Pastor Joshua, you want to raise your hand? In 1 Timothy, there is the forbidding of marriage. That's what's going to happen. I want to talk about marriage. I don't think necessarily that people will forbid it, but maybe they will. But really, it's a spirit of why the heck would you? There's going to be a suggestion. The suggestion is the following. Um, marriage is not needed. Just do your thing. Have sex with who you want to. When it loses its vigor, move on. Don't be tied down. Marriage is not good. It's not worth it. It's not worth the sacrifices. Uh, let's read Matthew chapter 19. Jesus teaches on celibacy. We don't have the, well, we have one young kid, but it might be over his head. I hope so. <laughs> Matthew chapter 19, verse 11. But he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, all cannot accept this saying. This is very, very powerful. This is right out of the words, mouth of Jesus in red. All cannot accept it. It's for a select few. All cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. 
For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Okay? What's being said here is a eunuch is being used as a physical device and also a symbolic device. A technical unit, eunuch is someone who has had essentially their testicles removed. Then, therefore, they do not have necessarily, it's a little bit complicated now, but they don't really have a sex drive. Okay? Then he says that there's some people who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. That does not mean that they, they did something to remove their sex drive. It just means they don't have one or as much as one or they're able to keep that at bay more than others. Jesus says if you burn with passion for sexual intercourse, you need to get married. You should get married. You don't get married if your sex drive is not there. If you have made that decision for the kingdom, then don't get married. It's a gift for some. Not many, but for some. And if you have that gift, praise the Lord, go for it. Okay? 1 Corinthians. Let's see where... I've got so many little notes in here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is Paul speaking in a similar sense. It's a little longer, but it's very important to, to, to establish narratives here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right? We've got a little teaching in the house of the Lord today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So, Paul writes, it is good for a man not to engage in sexual intercourse, if it's a gift, but nevertheless, because of the sexual prowess, it is important for a man to have his own wife. And for a woman to have her own husband. Because if not, if the sex drive is there, you may choose uh, 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 to, to engage in sexual encounters with someone that you are not married to. Or maybe you're going to be going to a prostitute. Or maybe in the modern realm, you're watching something on the internet that you should not be watching to fulfill your lusts. A protector of that, get married. Protect yourself from sexual morality, get married, so you will not be as likely to be sexually immoral. Then this is where things get very interesting, and this is not what you usually teach from a pulpit, but it's important. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. We're all old here. What does that mean, the affection due to her? Have sex with her. If she wants to have sex, you have sex. If he wants to have sex, you have sex. But I'm not really feeling it. Oh, Paul has to talk about that in the next verse. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What does this mean? This does not mean like, hey, hey, honey, I really don't like that dress. I want you to wear this dress. No, no, no. What's being said here is this, verse 5. Do not deprive one another of sex. Do not deprive one another of sex except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Paul says here, the only time you, do, you deny your husband or your wife sex is if you're like, we, I need your consent right now. I'm not going to just do it. I need your consent right now. I do not want to have sex at this point in time because I'm devoting my time to fasting and prayer. 
So what does this mean? This means if you're not feeling it, gentlemen, and your wife wants to engage sexually, you engage sexually. And women, if your husband is feeling it and you're not feeling it, guess what the word says? Unless you're fasting, unless you're in prayer, your body is not your own and his body is not yours. Now, I know some of us are like, this is so awkward, this is so weird, but I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, one of the keys to a healthy marriage is a healthy sex life. You have, there's a lot of counseling I've done with couples that are, are not doing well. And one of the first questions we ask them is, how's your sex life? Uh, 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 what? Uh, I can. I'm a pastor. Paul is very clear here. I'm telling you, if you engage romantically, if you engage sexually, the two shall become one. When you're one in the spirit and in the physical, there is a unity that is happening. If you have not received this teaching and you are over 30, there has been a failure on previous ministries. This is like 101 marriage counseling. 101. 101. You, you, you do it even if you're not in the mood. Now, do not deprive one another except for the consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. He's not making dogma out of it. He's, Paul is usually not this clear. He's very clear. I'm not making dogma out of it. I'm making it as a concession. It is a very, very wise idea. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God. One in this matter and another in that. What is he saying here? I am not making it a law that you are not to be married. For I wish that all men were like me, Paul says, who apparently is not married and doesn't have a, a, a sexual drive as, as much as others. But each man and woman has his own gift. But I say to the unmarried, and I say to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay. If you have the gift to remain single, Paul is saying, remain single. It's a gift Jesus says that he's given to few, not many, few, okay? So what am I getting at here? The narrative is the Lord uplifts marriage, clearly, and he uplifts sex. Sex is good in his eyes. It is so good in his eyes that you're not supposed to deny your spouse, except for fasting and prayer. Should I just let all the married people leave early today? Why destroy marriage? Why? I want to be very clear. Look, some people don't get married. Both Jesus and Paul say it's actually the better option. So don't be looking down on people that are, you know, they're getting older and they're not married. Actually, according to the scriptures, it is the more ideal. But it's a gift that's been given to some, not all. Then, therefore, the rest of us who have not received that gift have other gifts. Um, why would the enemy in our culture want to destroy marriage? A couple of reasons. Uh, one is 
It's a symbol. It's a symbol of the Father's love. It's a symbol of the bridegroom and bride understanding, right? Everything, every time from Genesis to Revelation, there's a motif, right? It's a bridal paradigm. And the Lord, in fact, gave us marriages to better understand the paradigm of the Father's love for us. That's why it's there. And also to obviously populate the planet. But that's why it's there. Two, I'll be quite honest with you. Um, when you get married, there is a, a lot of character development that I don't know how else you would get it. I'm not saying you have to be married to have certain character development. Not at all. But what I'm saying, I'm telling you right now, when you get married, there are character developments that you are like, what? I didn't know I was like, like that. Look, I'm telling you, uh, marriage forces submission between both parties. Both male and female need to submit to one another in love. I, I mean, Dawn and me, when we first got married, I wanted to go out with the guys on Friday night. And my, I mean, we're like, we're like a couple months married. And my wife is like, well, Friday night I really wanted to see you. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm married. <laughs> um, I can't just go out where, and do what I want anymore. I'm telling you, for, for anyone, particularly a male, when, when you lose that, you're like, wow, preferring others as Christ prefers the church. Man, you learn now. You know, it's hard to learn. You learn selfless love. You learn preference. You learn the sharing of finances. That was totally awkward for me. Totally awkward. Like, my wife has to pay some of my bills that I have when I was going to school, college. It's very awkward. Oh, I have that pride, Dave. I need to check that pride a little bit. Oh. Uh, do I have to? Proverbs 18, for the record. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. There's a third reason why the enemy wants to destroy marriage. One is the symbol of the Father's love, and Jamie, if you come on down. Two is the uh, character development that it creates. It's the imaging and the symbolism of the divine order of things. That is why the enemy wants to go up against it. If no one's getting married, they're not going to really understand the motif of the bridegroom and the commitment and the covenant that is made. But there's also a third reason which lends itself to yet another somewhat sensitive piece. And that is one of the godly responses, one of the godly responses to being married is, of course, having children. This is yet another construct that is being articulated. Either having children so late that you can only have one, or not having any children at all. And I've heard a lot of different things. And like I said, go to the Word, and we can talk later. But look, I've heard people say, I'm not sure if I want to bring children into this world. Um, I'm going to be honest. Um, that saddens me. I get it. You know, you bring, you, the world is a wonky place. It's a crazy place. We think about persecution, we think about trial, we think about tribulation. Okay, I get that. But guys, the first commandment unto man is be fruitful and multiply. That is the first commandment spoken to man. And I understand that as New Testament believers, we have a tendency to spiritualize things. Being fruitful and multiplying is making disciples. Amen. But I'm just here to tell you that's not what he means in Genesis. What he means in Genesis is physically reproducing. I'm not saying this is like the only reason, but look, man, if Christians had more kids like they used to, there would be more. Right? There'd be more people of influence. 
I mean, do, you, do you know what group of people have the largest families, right? Islam, right? Muslims. So, you know, Muslims are, 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 are increasing in population drastically, drastically. It's sensitive, so I want to be slow with this. Look, man, it's hard to say that we should not have children because of the difficulties of the world. It's like, just, just so you understand, the trial, the tribulation, the persecution that you experience now is nothing compared to previous generations that were having children. This is nothing. And here's the other thing. If you, if you, if you personally do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, what tribulation are you talking about? You're not even going to be here. So, if you believe in that theology, right? So, Psalm 120, it's hard to argue the divine order and plan of the Lord. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. When you have children, you're receiving a heritage, not from your husband, your wife, from the Lord. Do you hear the holiness in that statement? Kids are given by, by the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Having children, right? There's prestige. You're even able to talk with your enemies because of, the, because of what? Because of the support in the community of your own family, of your children that are there, right? Fire right here. It's Proverbs 17. Children's children are the crown of grandparents, and the glory of children is their father. You hear this. The children are not just good. They're a crown. A crown that is given to mankind. A crown from the Lord. Why not children? These are some of the ideas. Well, one, you're not married. If you're not married, yeah, you, you shouldn't be having children. Two, it's, it's a sensitivity, but it's a real thing. Um, there are men and women who biologically cannot, or biologically are having a hard time with that. That happens. But then there's also another group, and that is, well, I don't want to. I'm choosing not to. Look, I want to be very sensitive with this one. I would never make a dogmatic statement that if you're saying that you don't want to, that that is sinning or that is an error. I would not do that. I don't think that's appropriate. But I would say this. If you're choosing not to have children, I think you really need deeply go to the Lord and ask the question, why? Why is it? For some, it's I don't want to lose my life and my independence. Whoa. That's probably why you should have children, so you can learn that character development. Uh, maybe I'm so afraid of what the world will be. Well, maybe you got to work on some fear. It could be when you get to the Lord that the Lord literally is saying to you, I don't want you to have children because I want to free up all of your time for certain things of the Lord. I do believe that's possible. I just think it, it has to be, in my opinion, very, very crystal clear because everything else on planet earth every other animal every other plant reproduces of its kind 
It, not having children because of a choice, not because of other things, but because of a choice, just really appears to be counterintuitive to the divine plan from God and from nature. One, mankind has a sexual impulse. Prior to prophylactics, prior to birth control, you're not going to have a choice. Right? You're not going to have a choice. So it's only really a choice now because of man's invention. But over the long history, there isn't really a choice if you're married and you're engaging in sex. Because that's going to be a natural byproduct. So God has given both male and females a sexual impulse. Then therefore, why? It's not just for enjoyment. There's a reason why it's so enjoying. Because raising children are really hard. So you got to make something really enjoying so that you'll go through raising a children. That's a fact. Anyone that has kids, you know. The only way you're having kids if the reason, to, the way to have a kid has to be enjoying. Right? That's like the only way it's going to happen. Especially for females that have to give birth. It's like, not so enjoying. There is, look, uh, to be serious, there is a sexual impulse. God has given a sexual impulse. That's not just for enjoyment. That is for the natural order of things to have children. Two, shocker, women ovulate every month. There's a reason. It's a part of God's divine order. But I do want to clarify this because it's sensitive, right? If you're not married yet, we're not looking at you in judgment. Come on. That's not what the house of the Lord does. If you're not married yet, maybe it's just not the Lord's timing or maybe you've made a decision that it's a choice that you've been given that gift. The word says that. If you don't have children now, I'm not looking at you funny. There are multiple reasons for it. But what I'm saying here is if one of the reasons is if you just choose not to, I think you just really need to make sure the Lord is saying in the history of mankind it is this 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 is a natural order to scriptures say how much of a blessing and a heritage it is is there room for couples not to have children for a choice yes but i don't think we need to say or should say that life is hard then therefore i don't want to have them here are some very interesting people who were born into extremely difficult environments much harder than your environments, and to be quite honest, if they were able to get a, what do you call it, a sonogram today, because of the ailments that were going inside of them, and because of the chemical imbalances inside of them, we know through science, they could very well have been aborted. Who are some of these people? Can you imagine a world without this group of people? Can you imagine from your own womb who could be created? What evangelist? What mother? What father? What prayer warrior? Here are some people that underneath modern times would have been probably terminated. Can you imagine a world without Albert Einstein? Can you imagine a world without a Mozart? Can you imagine a world without a Beethoven? Or a Sir Isaac Newton? These are all men that were born into extremely troubling times with parents with ailments, poverty. They were not being born at the right time. But can you imagine a world without a Beethoven? 
Out of Mozart? Out of Einstein? Newton, the theory of gravity, for crying out loud. I mean, it's, you, we can't even fathom what treasures that God has in store for your children. But I really do think it's this in closing up. This 1 Timothy 4, yes, is about food. Yes, it's about marriage and then therefore a byproduct of children. But really what I believe is happening here, and I think is what we need to come up against, is a spirit that's trying to fall on earth of being guilty. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. If we were making decisions based upon our own pride and our own wants, like it's going to be too complicated to do these natural orders, I would suggest you may be stepping into the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the body. Coming up against the spirit of guilt, let me just stand up. Last verse for today, if I could find it. And let me, let me stand up. We're going to be out of here and close out with some worship here. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Let's begin in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? And so this is coming up against that spirit of guilt. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? You can't be guilty because you've been set free. The only one that could issue you a a judgment is God himself because you've been redeemed and made into a new creation. So as the world starts throwing this guilt on you, you're an American, so you have a certain level of guilt. Or you're white, you have a certain number of guilt. Or you're male, or you're black, or you're this or that. So there's a guilt that is associated with you. You need to step out of that and be like, nope, that is not the spirit that I know. Come on, we need to listen to the narrative of the Lord. And what he says about his order. We're going to have the altar team come on down. And I know this may be awkward for some of you. But if you have a bad taste in your mouth. In marriage. If you have a bad taste in your mouth regarding children. Um, I, I would encourage you to come on down. And we're just going to pray for you to see the goodness of the hand of the Lord in it. Because these are beautiful things. These are not troubling things. Come on. Don't let the world or your culture or your desire for money and profit and ease to take away from the divine purposes and order of the Lord of His beauty. That children are a crown. That they're a delight. That marriage is good. That sex is good. It's His order. His divine order to the planet. And yes, that means you have to sacrifice. And yes, that means you may have to engage when you don't want to. 
But it's the word of the Lord. And his word is perfect. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Maybe, maybe, maybe a slightly less awkward sermon next Sunday. We don't know yet. It might be slightly less awkward. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Lord of all creation. Of water, earth, and sky. The heavens are your tabernacle. Glory to the Lord most high. Oh God of wonder.